Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, if you're new this morning or it's been a while since you've been here, you may be wondering after hearing that scripture reading, why are we reading all this sad stuff from the Bible together? Uh, Well, let me be the first to welcome you to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Uh, It is a different book. We actually had a congregant who was kind of working ahead before we started this series. He was doing the formed life, and so he read Ecclesiastes 1 the Monday before the series started, and he called the church and basically asked, is this a sick joke? Are we really going to talk about this book? It is different, but it's very important. Kohelet, uh, or the teacher or the preacher, depending on your translation, uh, is the one who speaks the most in this book. You're introduced to him in chapter 1. And he is like a philosopher. He forces us to examine the parts of our lives that we'd rather not think about. In general, he forces us to look at things we think are going to make us happy. They're going to make us satisfied and fulfilled. Things like pleasure things like uh, workplace success and accomplishment. And then what Kohala does is he turns those things over like rocks in the yard, and then he shoves our faces into the gross stuff hiding underneath. It is not always pleasant what Kohala does, but it is always true. And if we allow it, it is always helpful. It is always instructive. So today, Kohelet is kicking over the rock of wealth. That's what we're looking at. And it doesn't take probably much reflection to realize that most human beings for most of human history have had a really unhealthy relationship with money. I don't know if you know that, uh, but we struggle with money. And it's one of those things that, that it's one of those through lines from every age, from every culture, every ethnicity. It doesn't matter. People love money. And perhaps No one put the folly of money better than Steve Martin when he said this about it. He says, I love money. I love everything about it. I bought some pretty good stuff. I got me a $300 pair of socks, and I got a first sink and an electric dog polisher and a gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater, and of course, I bought some dumb stuff too. Yeah. (laughs) Why do we do this? Why why do we, as Will Rogers put it, we, we kill ourselves to make as much as possible to buy stuff we don't need or want to impress people that we don't actually like, right? And here's the real kicker. 
Why do we laugh at little jokes about money? I do this, knowing how true they are. And then we go out and we try to make as much money as we possibly can. Why do we do this? And I think Kohelet, he puts his finger on the problem. For the last several weeks, right, we've talked about, he talked about pleasure and work and, and other good things that we can love too much. And he said that these are like the carrot at the end of the stick, that once you finally get them, you finally get pleasure, you finally get success, and you eat of that, right, you get that carrot and you eat it and it leaves you disappointed. But money is like that carrot that every time you take a step toward it, it takes two steps back. We are all hamsters on a wheel when it comes to wealth, and it's exhausting. It never stops. Wealth, this is what Kohelet's going to get at, is that wealth promises rest, but it only leads to restlessness. The love of wealth promises rest, but it will only lead to restlessness. And he's going to point this out in three specific ways, kind of three arguments. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Use your table of contents if you need to. We're going to be in chapter 5 of that book, okay? I'm going to reread verse 10 to us again. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That word vanity is a really important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. It literally means smoke or vapor. Depending on your translation, it might be vanity or meaninglessness. Remember with me, Kohelet is a king, and he has enormous wealth. He's fabulously wealthy. We know that from chapter 2. So he speaks as one who has lots and lots of resources and yet finds that he cannot find the meaning and satisfaction that he so craves just through money. And basically, he starts with his thesis statement. Okay, this is what he's going to prove, is that anyone who loves money will never be satisfied by it. And then he points out why, and this is his first reason, this is verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, the more money you have, the idea here is the hungrier your expenses get. Like hungry, hungry hippos. You remember that game? Like the hippos, they just keep eating. I should have put a picture up. That's the idea. Or to put it another way, maybe, maybe this is easier to remember. The more you have, the more you need to have. This is one of those things that you slowly realize the older that you get. It's like, oh man, I finally, you know, I, you know, I remember that, that feeling when I got my first car. That's finally, I, can, I have freedom, I can get to school, I can get to work, I can get to Chipotle or whatever I want. But then suddenly I've got to worry about, well, how much is gas this week? Especially right now, right? Well, how, how much are the new tires that I need? How much is the, I have to get a quarterly oil change? Why did no one explain this to me? That my car will explode if I don't do that. Then I, then I got to pay for insurance every year. And those are just the expenses you plan for with a car. Like what about that check engine light that comes on like twice a year no matter what you do? Or that first home purchase, right? You're, you you. You've got something bigger, and there's more storage, and there's more living space, and that's great. But then you realize it costs more to warm up that house and to cool it down. And now you've got to insure the roof, and you've got to mow the lawn, you've got to fix the foundation, and on and on and on. If you're a homeowner, you know, on and on that list goes. 
And those are just like basic needs in life, a way to get around, a place to live. Even if you really, really make it, okay, you make more than you could possibly imagine. And, and, and you can get a boat or an RV or a lake house or whatever. All of that takes more money too. The more money you have, the, the more you need to have. And, and that's just the, the, the budget part of this. There's also the psychological part because the more money you have, then the more obligation you have. You get asked by family and friends and foundations and nonprofits and charities to give more. The expectation of those around you goes up. And the second you finally get to that better neighborhood or that better school or whatever financial goal that you wanted to hit and you move into a new social circle, we've documented this is a real psychological phenomenon. You get into that new social circle and suddenly you are the poorest person you know. And so you need more. It never stops. The more you have, the more you need to have. This is Kohelet, the, those who eat your wealth increase. That's what he means. You just have to keep feeding them. But for those lucky few, perhaps, you can, who can get to a place where you can spend more to maintain that social standing and to maintain that quality of life, that you've become accustomed to. Even if you can outspend the increased demands that are all around you, then you have another problem. This is now verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, this verse is really difficult to translate. So there's some debate about how to translate that, that phrase, full stomach in English, it's actually just translating one Hebrew word, and it just means abundance. A lot. It means a lot. So the translators you can see there, are they're wrestling with the literal meaning of that word and what it, what it might mean metaphorically, what the meaning might be. But either way, I think the point is really, really clear. And here's what it is. It's more money, more problems. That's, that's the idea. The rich person in their comfortable bed and their full stomach, they still do not end up sleeping very well. Because the more you have, the more you have to lose. Kohelet makes the point even clearer in the following verse. This is verse 13. It says, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Right? In one bad venture, this, this, this hypothetical father that he gives loses everything. Has nothing now to pass on. Now, this part of wealth, I think, is really counterintuitive to us. Because my hunch is, for most of us, myself included, our, our intuitive sense about money and wealth is that the more money you have, the less stress you'll have in life. That that's really fundamentally what money can do. It can get you out of trouble. That's the idea. And to be sure, not having enough money is very stressful. We know this. And we've actually hosted here at our church this, this thing called the Cost of Poverty Experience. And it, it's meant to train those of us who have never experienced real lack, what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck, how difficult and stressful that truly is. Okay, so hear me clearly. There's no doubt about that. Not having enough is not a good thing. Having a good job and a good wage, that's a good thing. And as a church, part of the work we do with places like the Hope Center is 
help vulnerable neighborhoods find those things. We believe that's part of God's design for us. It's part of human flourishing. We know this. However, it is equally true that having lots and lots of money does not necessarily make you happier or less worried in your life. That is not true. And there's lots of research around this idea. But one example, we were looking at a study done uh, by a guy named Brian Fickert. He is an economist. He works at the Chalmers Center. They do all kinds of research uh, around human flourishing uh, and economics. And he uh, was speaking about the study, these several studies that were done. And he, this is essentially what he said about our late modern moment, okay, like right now, our culture right now. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but essentially he said, Western civilization is as good or better. It's the most effective civilization ever at reducing material poverty by, by far. In human history, there's no comparison. We are really, really good at economic growth. However, while we can chart economic growth going up and up and up consistently for the past hundred years, I mean, really since the Industrial Revolution on, it has been exponential growth. We can chart that. At the same time, we can chart happiness in those same places where that growth is happening, and we see it going down and down and down. We can measure that. There is no ongoing relationship or correlation between wealth and happiness at a cultural level. There isn't. Now, part, there's a lot you could say about that, but at least part of it is the idea that the more you have, that the more, then the more you have to worry about. So your happiness actually goes down. You, now, you often have employees that you've got to worry about. You've got investments now that you've got to worry about. You've got, you've got to watch prices on global trade and supply lines and corporate espionage. And you've got to look for coworkers who may be undermining you in your career or competitors who are outperforming you or inflation or recession. Worry doesn't go away with wealth. It just moves on to other things to worry about. So even with money, you have to worry about your money because at any moment, you could lose it all. It's that fragile. It's that transient. Like Janine Roth, who wrote about this, who invested 30 years of her life savings with a can't-miss investor he had an amazing track record for minimal loss and modest but steady, consistent gain. All of her friends raved about him. Everyone she knew said, you've got you've to trust this guy. You've got to invest with him. And she talks about how one day in late 2008, she picked up the phone and her friend told her to sit down because that financial manager, who was a man named Bernie Madoff, had just been arrested in the largest investment fraud in history. Like that. It was gone in a moment. This is Kohelet's point. No matter how much money you have, no matter how smart you are, no matter how talented, how careful, how cautious, we are all of us. One bad decision, one housing crisis, one market disruption, one medical diagnosis, one war, one pandemic away from losing it. It's that fragile. And that's truly terrifying for all of us. That's scary. Which is the irony, right? <laughs> the thing that can buy you the best sheets and the softest mattress and the down pillows and the quietest CPAP machine, for those of you who need that, 
is the very thing that can keep you up at night. And all you can do, all you can do, if you love money, all you can do is try to get more and throw it into the, that pit in your stomach, hoping that it can do for you what it has never done for pretty much anybody else, including Kohelet. Because the more you have, the more you have to lose. But it's actually even worse than that. Kohelet is not done. <laughs> Look at verse 15. He says, as he came, that is the, the one who loves money, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You can see he's been building here. He's built on each other. Even if, Kohelet says, even if you can outsave your expenses and then you can outspend your worries and you can avoid the worst that life can throw at you, no one's portfolio outperforms death. Naked as we came, he says, we return to dust and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Because the more you have, the more you have to leave behind. That's it. You cannot outspend your mortality. It always catches up to you. And even if you work really hard and you save to help your family and you're incredibly blessed, right? You don't, you don't lose that along the way. And you save it so that your family has something after you die, which is noble and helpful. Most economists agree that something like 70% of generational wealth is gone after one generation. And then about 90% after two. Now maybe you're thinking, but that won't happen to me. <laughs> maybe, but for how long? How long does that last? How many generations does that touch until it stops helping at all anymore? Your kids and their kids and their kids, how far? See, this is the idea. Kohelet says, even if, even at the best case scenario, what does this actually do? And you'll notice every one of these threads that we've been pulling here around wealth with Kohelet, it, what, what, what happens is it ends in restlessness and worry and anxiety. If you make lots, then you're going to spend lots. And if you have lots, you're going to worry lots. And if you save lots, you're going to leave lots behind. And who knows what will happen to that? If we're storing up wealth in order to find rest, we are making a bad investment. The ultimate things that wealth promises, okay, control, security, comfort, they never materialize on payday. Instead, we'll keep worrying and then we'll keep grinding and we'll keep spending and we'll keep hoarding even though we know it doesn't work. And this is what blows me away the, the most about money. Okay, now listen, money, income, those are, like I said, those are good gifts from God. But we all basically know that on its own, that will never make us happy. I mean, how many pop songs have taught us, right? You can't buy me love, right? You can't buy happiness. We know that. Certainly not on its own. And I don't think there's a single thing Kohelet has probably said today that we haven't already thought about ourselves. And yet we are so tempted to not believe what our own eyes tell us. And here's what I think the problem is, at least in part. 
We cannot rest from the love of money until we find that rest somewhere else. Kohelet doesn't come out and say that here. That's not what he's trying to do. But we know that the testimony of the Bible shows us that we cannot rest from the love of money until we find the rest that it promises somewhere else. Which is why when we turn to Jesus, he is so adamant that he and he alone can give us rest. Remember, he promises, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Jesus says that in Matthew 11. He says that to the poor and the wealthy alike. He says, you all are looking for the rest that only I can give. But we have to train with Jesus to experience that rest. Which is, that's why when Jesus says, come to me, find my rest, then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, you can't have that rest unless I teach you how to get it. We have to train with him. We can't just say no to the power of money and hope for the best. We have to say yes to Jesus in the same breath. And I, he has three ways to train us to find rest from the love of money. At least three ways that I want us to, to talk about quickly. First, Jesus wants to teach us to say thank you. All good. This is a fundament, this is a foundational biblical teaching about wealth and money. All good things are a gift. All of them. They're all a gift from God. Kohelet talks a little bit about that himself in verse 20. Whatever wealth we do have, it's a gift. It's a good thing. But it takes gratitude to acknowledge it as a gift. And I love how John Ortberg puts this in his book. It's called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. He says, gratitude is not something we give to God because he wants to make sure we know how much trouble he went to over us. Gratitude is the gift God gives that enables us to be blessed by all his other gifts the way our taste buds enable us to enjoy the gift of food. That's what gratitude is. Without gratitude, our lives degenerate into envy and dissatisfaction and complaints, taking what we have for granted and always wanting more. His point here is that we actually can't experience God's gifts without gratitude. They will turn on us. If all we care about is the gift itself and we never acknowledge the giver, that gift will turn on us. It'll never be enough. That's his point. Gratitude for good gifts, like including things like money and a good job and a nice home and daily provision, daily bread. Gratitude for those things, they shift our affection and our attention from the gift to the giver. But that takes practice. Like gratitude to God or to anyone is not always natural to us human beings. I mean... I think most of us are, prob- are more like kids on Christmas morning, right? We open the present, and if we like it, we just start playing with it. And if we don't, we just start crying, <laughs> right? How many Christmases does it take for us to turn and acknowledge the gift giver, right? That takes training. That takes some stern looks sometimes from, from mom and dad, right? <laughs> okay? Jesus wants to teach us to say thank you so that we can actually experience the gift as it was meant to be received. He also wants to teach us to be generous. 
We said earlier how counterintuitive uh, it is the way that the more money we have, uh, in some ways, the less experience, the less happiness we can experience. But Jesus knew this. He knew this dynamic was at play, which is why he also said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that word blessed uh, is a really churchy word. <laughs> um, it actually, it can just as easily be translated happy. <laughs> happy is the person, happier is the person who gives than the person who receives. And of course, there's all kinds of research that already backs this idea up, that the most generous people tend to be the happiest people. But here's the thing. Generosity can be a lot like exercise. Okay, there are some people out there who love exercising. You don't have to convince them. They just want to do it. But most sane people I know, we hate exercising. (laughs) At least at first, right? You don't want to do that. The problem is, even if you know it's good for you, I do this, we keep waiting to want to do it before we'll try it. But that, you'll never do it. Generosity can function this way too. You won't, want, you won't want to give until you start to give. Now, Some of you are already really, really good at this. And my encouragement to you is to excel still more. Jesus is teaching you and will continue to teach you and push you That giving is a better investment than receiving. It is a gift, too, from God. Generosity itself is a gift from God. For those of you in the room who maybe get anxious around money or giving, I want to encourage you to start small. You don't have to run a mile. Just walk the block. That's okay. Take time this week to see how much you could start giving away regularly to your your church. We, We believe giving to... The church who Jesus loves is an important part of our discipleship to him. Or to an organization you believe is doing good work, if that's easier for you, that's fine. It's okay to start small. The goal is to let Jesus teach you to be generous because that's where real rest and joy are found. It's part of the gift. Okay, last, Jesus wants to teach us to repent. Repent, right? That's a word maybe you know pretty well, maybe you don't. Uh, It's a really important word, repent. The Christian life, following Jesus, starts with repentance. And the idea of repentance is to turn away from something, even something really good, but that's not God, and to turn to him instead, to trust him instead, to provide what this thing promises you. In fact, So important is repentance. It was the first sermon Jesus ever preached. He said, repent, turn away, and enter my kingdom instead. Follow me instead. Everything starts with this basic act of repentance. And everything continues with this basic act of repentance. We need moments of reminder along the way that Jesus is our rest, and Jesus is our joy, and Jesus is our security, and he is our happiness. He is our ultimate investment and retirement plan, to put it in financial terms. It's all him. He is the only thing in life and death that cannot be taken away. But we forget that. Even even with our best intentions, we forget that. And we need reminding and we need repenting. So here's what I want us to do as we close. And this may feel weird, but I don't care. So... 
I want us to, to physically lift our money to God right now for His use. For you, that might mean getting out a wallet from your pocket or your purse onto your lap. If you're a new school, it might just be getting out your phone. If you're old school, it might mean getting out a checkbook. Okay, whatever you have on you that represents the wealth God has given you, I want you to physically get it out, okay? And what I want you to do is to hold it in your hands. And I want you to keep your hands open like this, okay? And even if it's just a few inches, I want you to lift it up. You don't have to put it over your head, okay? But just lift it up, open-handed. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in prayer, okay? And there are going to be moments for you to respond that are going to be on screen. And what we're going to say, for the most part, in response is, Jesus, give us rest. So lift it now and let me start praying. Jesus, we know that what we hold in our hands right now is a good gift from our Father, but it cannot replace you. So Jesus, give us rest. We confess that for many of us, we've never trusted you with our money. Where we've slowly over time placed more confidence in our money than, we, than what we have in you. Jesus, give us rest. Make us increasingly dissatisfied in wealth and in money and in stocks and bonds. Make us restless until we find our rest in you. Jesus, give us rest. We give you thanks for all the good gifts you've given to us. Those that we hold now, the ones we can see and remember, and the ones we do not see and may never know. And empower your people through the Spirit to give generously and to live generously with all we've been given, knowing that a watching world through our rest and joy will turn and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, hear our prayers. Amen.